Good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and I just invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, where we will read verses 2 through 6. Uh, once again, Isaiah 9, 2 through 6. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Mike Kazarowski. I am the uh, pastor of student ministries here at FAC, which basically means I get to hang out with all the teenagers. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty awesome job. It's, it's a good job. Um, what we'll do is we'll read the passage and then I'll pray and, and we'll begin. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 2 through 6 says this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden in the staff, uh, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, now as we enter into a time of studying your word, I pray, Lord, that you, uh, your spirit would illuminate us to what you would have for us this morning, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't just take a glance at our Savior, Jesus Christ, but we would carefully and patiently meditate on his name. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. I am uh, the youngest brother uh, of, of three sons. I've got two older brothers, six and eight years older than me. And um, you can imagine my entire life uh, was mainly devoted to keeping up with them. <laughs> I always wanted to keep up with my, my two older brothers. And um, this was clearly the case on one instance, uh, a beautiful, breezy Saturday afternoon. My family is out on a, on a bike ride, and um, we come across a portion of the road that isn't paved. It's just gravel. There's rocks everywhere. And um, one of my older brothers just flies through this thing on his bike. I couldn't have been more than seven years old at the time, and I see my brother fly through this portion of the street, and, and I am thinking to myself, you know, I'm not much of a risk taker, um, but I could do that, right? And so I, I conjure up as much confidence as I possibly can. I, I go flying through the, 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 the rocks, and there was like immediate regret and panic. <laughs> it's like, as soon as my handlebars started wobbling, I knew that I had made a tragic mistake, and I must have hit some kind of rock or, or something because I go flying off the, the, the bike and I um, land on the rocks. And once again, that whole keeping up with your brothers thing, all that's racing through my mind after I land, I was in a, a lot of pain, but all that's racing through my mind is just don't cry. Just don't cry. Just, just don't cry. And then it happened. I looked down at my knee. And to a seven-year-old, I had this huge gashing wound from my knee, once again, at least for a seven-year-old, and there is blood pouring down my leg, and I lose it. 
It's, it's like floodgates open, and I've, I am just bawling my eyes out. And then my seven-year-old imagination kicks in, right? All of a sudden, I'm thinking, we're going to go to the hospital. There's going to be diseases in my leg. They're going to have to cut it off. I'm dying here, people. I'm dying, right? There was absolutely no consoling me. And then at that moment, my father comes, and he, and he scoops me up, and he brings me back into our house. And the, there's just... There's just this sense of calm and this sense of, of peace. Without a single word, um, my father was able to, um, just in his presence, I went from being ridiculously hysterical to calm and composed. I hope that you know that feeling from your dad. I hope when you see your father that that is the feeling that you receive. But let's be real for a moment. I know that many of you are sitting here and you don't recognize that feeling. Many of you perhaps are sitting here thinking, you know, Mike, I hate my dad. I hate my dad. Instead of your father having a calming presence, he has the opposite effect. Instead of comfort, you feel aggravation. Instead of security, you feel danger. Instead of joy, you feel pain when you see your dad. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I, I never even knew my dad. You know, my dad passed away when I was a little boy, and I, I never had the opportunity to even get to know him. Or worse, you say, I knew my dad, or I didn't know my dad. I didn't grow up knowing my dad because he walked out on me when I was a little girl. And now there's this void and, and this darkness in my heart that I just don't quite understand and I don't really know how to deal with it. One source um, would say that fatherlessness, if it was a disease, it would be considered uh, an epidemic. According to NPR, there is an estimated um, 33% of American children That's 24.7 million children live without their biological father. And the impact that it's had, it's a profound impact for the worse. I want you to take a look at some of these uh, statistics. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 71% of teenage pregnancies come from families with fatherless homes. 85% of children with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 90% of homeless or runaway children come from fatherless homes. Fatherlessness. One of the biggest issues in the country and nobody's talking about it. Men, can I address you for a quick second? If you are a father or you strive to be a father someday, you have a job to do. You have a job, a role to fill that only you can fill, and you have one shot in this life to fill it. God has given you a charge to lead your families, to lead them spiritually, to lead them physically, to lead them emotionally. And I'm afraid that we've raised a generation of absent, wimpy, cowardly men. Where have all the men gone? 
Your wives and your children need you to step up. Your wives and your children are crying out to you to lead them. You have an important job to do. I believe our nation has been plunged into darkness. uh, And a large part of this is because of fatherlessness, both physical and emotional fatherlessness. And so what are we to do? In the midst of darkness and disorder and confusion, where do we turn to? What's the answer? You have to understand that the passage that we read, Isaiah, um, this is actually the context. This is the context in which Isaiah prophesies this idea of darkness. The Israelites who is prophesying to were in darkness. They were in disorder. They were in confusion. And Isaiah says, hey, there's darkness right now, but there's a great light. There's a great light that has come and it pierces the darkness, a light so great that the darkness can't hide it. Essentially, what Isaiah is saying is you may feel like there's no hope in your family. You may feel like there's no hope in this country. You may feel like there's no hope in this world, but there's hope. There's hope, and it has been given to you, and it's been given to you in the form of a child, the form of a baby. And this child is given four names that describe his character that Isaiah is explaining. He wants to tell us more about this Messiah, this this Savior. And so in this Christmas series that we've been doing here at FAC, we're, we're walking through these four names that describe Jesus in hopes that you would not only know your Savior, but you would know him better that you would know him fuller, to know him completely. In a sermon um, given almost 150 years ago to the day, um, C.H. Spurgeon was preaching on Isaiah 9-6. And in regards to these four names, this is what Spurgeon had to say. Go ahead and take a look. He says, How forcibly this should remind us of the necessity of carefully studying and rightly understanding the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must not suppose that we shall understand him at a glance. A look will save the soul, but patient meditation alone can fill the mind with the knowledge of the Savior. Glorious mysteries are hidden in his person. This Christmas, let's not just give Jesus a glance. I feel like so often we do that. There's something fascinating that's happened with Christmas. You know, we celebrate Christmas because Jesus came to save us. He he came to break the bondage of us to creation. And yet somehow Christmas has been turned on its head. Christmas has been turned on its head and we are enslaved to the creation, the very creation that he came to save us from. Because you know it's Christmas time and there's things to do and we've got the decorations to put up and we've got the cookies to bake and we've got the parties to go to and we've got the house to clean up because the in-laws are coming and don't even get me started about the in-laws. We've got all of these things that we're just enslaved to and then we give Jesus a little glance. Let's not give Jesus a glance, but let's give him patient, slow meditation so that we can fill our minds with the knowledge of our Savior. The last two weeks, we um, learned that this hope, this light, this Messiah is a wonderful counselor. 
meaning he, uh, he has a supernatural wisdom. It's a wisdom that can only come from God. And then last week, Pastor Mark talked about how um, we explained and unpacked how this Messiah, Jesus, was mighty God, uh, meaning that he's a warrior. He, he is a strength. He's a powerful warrior that fights on our behalf, and he has a strength that is divine that only comes from God. And this week, we come to the third name that Isaiah describes as everlasting father. This Messiah is everlasting father. Now, before we get into this, I just want to uh, make two points of clarification in regards to this name that Jesus has given. Um, the, the first point is that uh, Isaiah is not referring to the first person of the Trinity. It would be easy for us having an understanding of the New Testament uh, and, and the Trinity to assume that uh, he's talking about the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, but he's not. It would be an error uh, to assume that Isaiah is talking about the Messiah and this child and how he's wonderful counselor and mighty God, and then all of a sudden he decides to switch directions and start talking about the first person of the Trinity. He's not doing that. He's not, he's not switching. He's still talking about Jesus. The second second point of clarification uh, that I want to make is that um, Isaiah is not claiming that the Messiah is the first person of the Trinity. He's not saying that Jesus is God the Father, right? Uh, You know, beginning in verse 6, it tells us that for us, a child is born to us, a son is given. The son has to be given by somebody who is giving God the Son, who is giving Jesus. It's God the Father, And so Isaiah is making the distinction that these are two separate persons, God the Father and God the Son. To assume um, or to think that um, God, the Father, and God the Son are actually one person and just taking on different roles at different times, like I've got to wear God the Father hat and now I've got to be God the Son. He takes on a different role. That's that's an error. We would call that modalism. Uh, And it is actually, it's inconsistent with Scripture. It goes against what Scripture teaches. There's one God who exists as three distinguishable persons. And Isaiah is speaking of God the Son and only God the Son, Jesus. And so you might ask, if he's not referencing God the Father, then what on earth could he possibly mean by calling Jesus, our God the Son, our everlasting Father? One commentator defines it this way. He says that this is actually a designation of a quality of the Messiah with respect to his people. It's a designation of a quality of the Messiah with respect to his people. How does the Messiah act and relate towards his people? He acts like a father acts to his children. He is fatherly towards them. Now, with these um, first two names that were given about the Messiah, Wonderful Counselor and and Mighty God, these these are characteristics that you would hope a king would have, right? You would want the leader of your nation to have a supernatural wisdom from God, to, to, to be wonderful counselor. You would want your leader, the leader of your, your nation to be mighty God, to be strong, to be uh, with a strength that uh, only God could provide. But then you come to this third name, everlasting father, and it's the first one that describes not only who he is, but how he relates to us. This is the first name that has a personal impact on us. 
wonderful counselor and mighty God could describe a king, and, and they do describe a king uh, being the Messiah, being Jesus, but this king is different than any other king. Because any other ordinary king in any other context sits in his throne and he sits in luxury and he's kind of in his own place. And there's almost this implied separation between a king and his people because the king is here and the people are here and there's a separation. There's really no, if you think about it, there's no intermingling between a king and his people for the most part on a day-to-day basis, right? While the king rules, you can't just waltz into the throne room whenever you want. You don't have an audience with a king on your own accord. You have no familial relationship with him. But we're told that this king is not only wonderful counselor and mighty God, but he is our everlasting father. All of a sudden, this changes how we view the king. For instance, let's say I decide that I would like to meet the president. Seems like a cool thing, right? Go and meet the president. And I decide that the best way to meet the president is just to waltz up to his house. So I go to the White House and I get up to the front door and I give it a good knock and hope that they'll let me in. There is a very high probability that when I knock on the front door of the White House, they're not going to let me in. In fact, I'm not even going to make it to the front door. The second I step on the property, the Secret Service is going to be on top of me. It's because I don't know the president. I have no relationship with the president. However, here's a famous picture from the Oval Office itself that I would like to share with you. This is President John F. Kennedy sitting at the Resolute desk, which is still used to this day. And the little boy playing underneath the desk is John F. Kennedy Jr. That's his son playing. He called, he called that little nook in the desk his, his house, Right? And to John Jr., that man sitting at the desk isn't the president of the United States. It isn't a powerful elected official. No, that man sitting at the desk is dad. That's my father. I have access to my father because... Jesus is everlasting father, fatherly in care. We have a different kind of relationship with him than any other ordinary king. We view the king differently. And not only does this change how we view the king and how he relates to us, but it also changes our understanding of how the king views us, how Jesus views us. It's not just how we view him, but how he views us. He looks at us differently. Every father views his children differently than anyone else's. I highly respect the men and women that serve in our children's ministry here at FAC because that's not something that I could ever do. I don't don't do well with kids. They make me nervous, right? I don't, I don't like dirty diapers, particularly. I don't like runny noses. I don't like pukey faces. Um, I walk into a room of children and I start getting anxious. My palms start to sweat and my heart begins to race because they like could pounce at any moment and I'm indefensible, right? Call me crazy, but as a youth pastor, I'll stick to teenagers any day. (laughs) However, my own children are different because they're mine. 
No one will ever replace Ella and Jacob. I love them with a particular love that only I, that, that I'll never have for anybody else's children. I will care for them differently than I care for anybody else's children. For instance, this past week, Ella was, uh, was sick. Um, she had to stay home from school on Wednesday. She had a stomach ache. And um, Sarah's been filling in uh, here at the preschool, substituting. And so uh, my work schedule was more flexible than hers was. So I had the privilege of staying home with my sick daughter on Wednesday evening. And, um, of course, it was when I was watching her because her stomach ache, just uh, for the sake not to gross you out, her stomach ache came to fruition. (laughs) And it came to fruition all over me. And um, after I got her cleaned up and I got myself cleaned up and I got over the the grossness of of it all, um, there was just this very tender moment between my child and myself. And um, she hugged me and she told me she loved me. And that's the kind of way we view our children. Despite the mess, despite the shortcomings, despite the failures, we share in that tender moment with our Savior because he's our everlasting Father. There's a special bond between a father and his children that is different and unique from any other kind of human relationship or interaction. There's no other bond like it. And this gives you the idea of just how we view Jesus and how Jesus views us. Now, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps that special and unique bond between you and your own earthly father has been severed. Perhaps it's been broken. Depending on your own experience with your own father, this idea of Jesus' father could bring you great comfort. However, maybe your circumstance was different, and the thought of Jesus as father could bring you great trepidation. How, how can I trust that Jesus is a good father? Well, how do we know we can trust anybody in any circumstance? Typically, we trust people when we have positive experiences with them over a long period of time. And the more positive experiences we have for a longer period of time, the more willing we are to put our trust in them. And so... You look at Jesus' track record, and it's impeccable. You look at what God's Word says about Jesus' fatherly care, and it's just, it's poured out on the, on the entire scriptures. Let's take a few, let's just look at a few examples. Some examples of His fatherly and tender care. In Mark chapter 5, there was a synagogue leader who approached Jesus. Uh, He wanted him to heal his dying daughter, who was back at at his house. And because of a delay, they didn't arrive in time um, before uh, before she died. And listen to what happens. This is what it says. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. 
Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. When we read this, we get this picture of Jesus sitting by a bedside of a little girl, almost like a father at the bedside of his daughter, almost reaching down, brushing the hair out of her face and saying, it's time to get up, little girl. It's time, it's time to wake up. Come on. And he reaches down into death and pulls her back. This theme kind of continues with, with children in, in Mark 10. Um, Mark 10, Jesus is out in public and people are bringing children to Jesus and the disciples decide to play bouncer. <laughs> they decide, no, Jesus doesn't want the children. Who do they think? Jesus is far too important for uh, these little kids. Right? He doesn't have time for them. Who, does he, who do these kids think they are? Right? And then Jesus kind of hears this and he sees that they're pushing the, pushing the children out and listen to how he rebukes his very own disciples. Mark 10, it says this, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms placed his hands on them, and blessed them. For those who don't convince you, let me uh, share one that has practical implications for you. 1 John 3.16 defines love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus Christ died for me. How do I know that Jesus is a good father and not a tyrant? Because he loves us. And how do I know that he loves us? Because he gave his life for us. How do I know that God, that Jesus loves me? Is because he poured out his sacrificial blood. He died so that I could live. And so he's not just our father uh, in his care for us, as Isaiah states, but given the context of the rest of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, he is a good and perfect father. He is good and perfect in his fatherly care. When our earthly fathers failed to comfort us, Jesus opened up his tendered arms. When our earthly fathers are selfish, Jesus is self-giving. When our earthly fathers fail to discipline us in order to correct our path, Jesus disciplines us. Don't let your attitude of your own father change your understanding of Jesus Christ as everlasting father. Louis Giglio um, says that God is not the reflection of your earthly father. No, he's actually the perfection of your earthly father. All the expectations that your dad didn't meet, Jesus does, and he goes far beyond your expectations. When our earthly fathers abandon us, Christ remains, and he's going to remain forever. And this is what Isaiah reminds us by not just calling Jesus a, a father, but an everlasting father. He will be fatherly towards us forever. Father forever. This is a reference to the never-ending nature of his care. It's a divine reference. Not only is Jesus eternal, but he will be eternal in his care for you. 
You don't have to be afraid of him giving up on you. You don't have to be afraid of Jesus leaving you. You don't have to be afraid that he's going to abandon his post because this kind of care from the Messiah will last forever. If we're honest with ourselves, some of us feel so guilt-ridden that we find it impossible to be forgiven. And we think that at some point, Jesus has to give up on me, right? At some point, he's going to walk out. You think, man, I've really screwed it up this time, and I've made a mess of things again, and I've fallen short again. Surely this is it, right? Surely this is the time where God's going to walk out, where he's going to give up. But God's very own word tells us that our sins are cast to the depths of the ocean, and they're not coming back. They're buried. You see, God has gone to great lengths to adopt you, and it's not for the purpose of abandoning you. And this is how we know. This is how we know. The reason he has gone to great lengths to adopt you is for his own glory. John Piper's on this all the time and explains that everything God does is motivated by his desire to be glorified. Every single action of God, every single decision of God, every single time he acts is ultimately with the purpose of bringing himself glory. He wants to be glorified. You see, God rescues you from your sin and eternal punishment. He sets you upright. He calls you my child. He redeems you. He regenerates you. He restores you so that he can be glorified. And so, if this is his motivation in saving you and adopting you, then this is also God's motivation in sustaining his relationship with you. And so, for God to walk out on you because of your own guilt or your own sin would not be an abandonment of you, but it would actually be an abandonment of his own glory. And he's got something to say about that. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, this is what he says. He says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What God is saying here is that, hey, I have turned away my anger from you because of your rebellion and your sin. I I have forgiven you for my own glory, not to cut you off. I'm not going to cut you off because to cut you off, to abandon you, would be to defame my name. If I were to cut you off, I would defame my name. And guess what? I'm not giving my glory to anybody. And so for as long as God desires to be glorified, which is eternally, you are safe in his fatherly care. And so what does this mean for us? It means we have somebody on our side. Isn't it nice just to know that somebody is there? Somebody understands, somebody is on your side when it feels like the whole world is against us and the walls are crashing down, we have an everlasting father in our corner. 
That means that no matter what stress or anxiety or weight or burden that we bear, we have somebody to turn to. We have a perfect protector. We have a perfect provider in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Christ and you are struggling this morning, whatever it is you're going through, take hold of that truth and call out to Jesus like a child calls to his father. Grasp this truth and go to Christ for your comfort and your security. And don't just stop today. Do it daily. Petition him daily for your need for his care. This is an invitation that Jesus himself gave you. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When you're in darkness, look to the light. Look to this light. Isaiah um, was not the last person to write about this Messiah being a light in the darkness. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John actually writes this about Jesus. Take a look. John chapter 1. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, there is a, um, there is a secular myth out there that we are all God's children. And I, and I know why it's popular, because it sounds very nice. It sounds very, very kind that, that we are all God's children. But according to God's word, it's only those who have received Jesus and believe in Jesus that have the right to become children of God. It's only those who believe in Jesus that have the right to call him everlasting father. And so perhaps... Um, this morning, maybe your world is plagued in darkness and disorder and confusion because you haven't received Christ in the manner in which he was given. Maybe you're depressed and lonely and long for that fatherly care that God's word describes and you've never found it. And you say, I've looked. I've looked for it in my job. I've looked for it in my own family. I've looked for it in my stuff. And I've never found it. And I so long and crave that fatherly care. And I just, I don't know where to turn to. Everybody else is happy around this time. And here I am just looking and looking and looking. And I haven't found it. The darkness in your heart can only can only be overcome with the true light. And that true light is Jesus. And so I would invite you that today be the day that you give Jesus a glance. Perhaps you've never even given him a glance. C.H. Spurgeon reminded us that a glance alone can save you. And so let today be the day you give him a glance. Let today be the day that you receive him 
and believe in his name.